done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and destroyed like Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you guys. Great, great morning already. Find Romans chapter 9. That's what Emma was just reading from, um, if you didn't know that. And um, we are in the second week of Romans 9 and in this series that we're calling The Righteous Revealed in the Gospel of Romans. And um, Romans 9 is some pretty heavy lifting, obviously. And so what, what Romans 9 is all about is a God who is sovereign. And what we mean by sovereign is we mean in complete control of everything all the time. Now, he, guys, here's the tension that we are in, right? And we even heard some of that tension play out in some of our prayer time. We believe that, there, that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. He is in control. And yet, honor is in the hospital, and so are hundreds of other children. And yet, many of us have been touched by um, health issues or deaths of loved ones. And yet, we watch the news and we see all that is going on in the world and the chaos, whether it be natural disasters or wars. Or, I mean, like, and so we look and we go, okay, wait a minute. How, like, just, let's just practically back up a step and go, like, if, if we really believe that God is in control of all things... And we look around and we go, it seems like all things are a train wreck. How do we, mirror, like, how do we marry those things? What are we going to do? Because here's, here's like, like, the, the, the question that I was asking as an atheist, the question that much of the world that might be agnostic, maybe they believe in a God, that God exists, but they don't believe in the Bible, um, is what the question we're asking is, okay, so if there is a God and he really is loving and gracious, then why are all of these bad things happening? And guys, that's a real honest question. Everybody in this room has had their heart ask that question before. In fact, a lot of that was what the prayer time was about earlier. And so here's the, here's the good news. 
The passage we're looking at today is the Bible's not only answer, but the Bible's best answer for why these bad things are happening. Because the question I want to ask is, okay, God, if you're really in control, and as Sean, I think it was the one that was praying, like God is never in heaven going, I did not see that coming. Oh, no. So wait a minute. Why would you allow Lucifer to rebel and become Satan? But if, if, if you know everything all the time ever, you knew he was going to rebel. Why make him? Well, let's just keep going. Why make Adam and Eve? If you know everything all the time, why would you make man and woman in your image, put them in a garden knowing that you weren't surprised by their rebellion? You knew they were going to. Why would you even do it then? Today gives us the answer. Paul is actually going to tell us why those things happen. But I'm going to tell you right up front, we may not like all the answers. Now, I'm just going to give you a couple of images I want you to look at um, and think about before we start reviewing even last week. Um, one is, so, so imagine, imagine that everything in the world is black. So here's what I want you all to do right now. I want you to find the black dot on that screen. Come on, find it. Well, you can't. Why? Now, imagine trying to explain to somebody, if, if the whole world was black, imagine trying to explain to somebody what white was. They have no context for white, but you put one white dot on that black background, and all of a sudden, it starts to make a little bit of sense. Now, take it the other way. What if all of the world was white? Find the white dot. There should be a white background on there somewhere. Oh, it's funny. It's not white on that one. That's weird. Um, there should be, um, if, if all the world was white, and you start to find the white dot, how do you explain white? To someone. Well, you can't because all of the world would be white. But you put a black dot on there, and now we have some contrast by which we're able to explain. Now, you stop and you go, wait a minute, what does white and black and dots have to do with things like grace and wrath and God's sovereignty and our responsibility? And I'll tell you, they ha it has everything to do with it. And that's what the passage is going to show us today. So by way of review, last week we hit hard these, these two biblical truths that there is, God is completely sovereign. That means he's in control of everything all the time. And you and I have choice and agency and responsibility for the choices we make. And those two competing things seem to, in our minds, they compete. And we're like, they don't make sense. And two things that don't make sense, we look at them and we go, they can't possibly be true. But what we have to constantly remember is, and this is what Paul tells us, is we're not God. God doesn't think the way we think. I don't just mean he doesn't think like the thoughts we think. I mean his way of thinking is outside of us. How can a being who is outside of time and, and space, and there, there is no before with God. So we, so, but at the same time, he has to communicate to, to, to beings that he has made in his image and given choice, how are you going to live your life when, 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 our, when our existence here, our temporal existence, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. How does, a, how does a being, God, who has no beginning, middle, or end, communicate to people that have a beginning, middle, and end? That's the tension. And we have two choices. We either punch through that mystery and invent some theology that is not true, or we just embrace the mystery. 
Right? We don't even, we, we, we stop trying to explain it. That's what I said last week. Guys, you don't need to send me all the verses about how God wants all people to be saved. I, I not, it's not just that I know the verses because I'm smart and I went to Bible school. I know, I know those verses and I believe them. God does want all people to be saved. But you also don't need to send me the verses that say God is completely in control of all things and just as he has planned it, so it has happened and just as he has, so it shall stand. I know those verses and I believe those verses. I've just chosen and I'm, and I'm encouraging you to choose to just embrace the fact that you can't know how those things work. Just embrace that. And then let that press you into a God who's so big that you can't understand it. Guys, if you get to a place where you go, oh, I, I, I think I've got a really good clue on how this all works, and this is it. I don't care which column you're lined up with, sovereignty or responsibility. There's the place of danger. The minute we go, I've got God figured out. Oh, my. Right? Like, who are we saying we are? Right? And yeah, we're saying we are God, and that is something he does not take lightly. But here's part of our propensity for being that way. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, so, so do you, like, how do you deal with this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? How do you reconcile them? And his answer was, I don't reconcile friends. He's saying, I see these things as both necessary, and that's where we'll end our message today. But guys, our problem in our culture today is, what, here's, what, here's how we define friend. And, and guys, the YouTube clips that I get sent or that, that, where, where people are saying, wait a minute, this idea that you can't reconcile these two things so they must not be true, is it all flows out of this idea that for, for us to be friends, for us to be like, like co-equal, we have to be the same. We have to think the same. We have to act the same. We have to vote the same. We have to look the same. And what, 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 what Spurgeon was saying was, these two things could be completely opposite and apparently opposed to one another and yet both actually interact beautifully because that's what real friendship is supposed to be about. Hey, I don't really think like you. I don't act like you. I don't dress like you. I don't, I, but you and I are friends because we're reconciled together by the grace of God, which is this mystery. That's the basic idea. It also bears repeating. One last thing by way of review. It bears repeating that, that this idea of the sovereignty of God, man's responsibility, sal salvation, the, the, our, our theology of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, um, it, this, the mystery isn't just about the doctrine of salvation. There is mystery in every part of theology. Right? We talked about the Trinity. Explain that to me. We talked about the kenosis. How does God become flesh? and make his dwelling among us, and, stay, and yet still stay fully God, and be fully man. We can't, there's all kinds of things in our theology that we cannot explain, but we don't push back against those things nearly as hard as we push back against this thing, because this thing, meaning man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, is the thing that starts to, to, starts to take what our desire for self-control away from us. We can still be completely in control of ourselves and go, I don't understand the Trinity. It's really hard to go, I'm in complete control of myself and God is completely sovereign. That one will mess you up. 
And that's why we push back against it so hard. So last week we talked about the mystery of the call. This week we're talking about the mystery of the method or God's methodology. So how does all this work? And, we're, and all that was reviewed because we're picking it up in the middle of the chapter because that's just kind of what you have to do unless we wanted our services to be even longer than our already uncommonly long two-hour services are. Um, but the question we're looking at today is how do we make sense of God's plan of salvation? So how do we make sense of how God planned to redeem the world back to him? Because we look at a world that looks chaotic and we go, this makes no sense. Right? And we're going to look at three points that Paul is going to point, press us into. The first thing is we have to trust in the plan, and that's going to be by far our longest point today, even though in Bible school it says always make your first point the shortest point. Um, today the, the first point is going to be most of the message. The second is that we have to have faith in the past. We find our faith in the, in the past, God's faithfulness in the past. That's where we find our faith. And then the last thing is we take responsibility. We take responsibility for the present. And, and, and um, Paul is going to start migrating us towards this man's responsibility side of the equation even before he gets to chapter 10. And then, Lord willing, we'll spend a couple weeks in chapter 10 looking at how man's response, complete responsibility is just a bigger part of the equation. So with that, open, hoping your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 9, we're going to start off with our first point. So how do we make sense of God's plan and salvation? We trust in the plan. So look at verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, I love how he asks all of these questions that are sort of anticipating the argument. Here's why. Not only is he anticipating his audience's argument, this is his heart's argument too. As, as the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to write this, he's going, I'm, I have no doubt he's going, this makes no sense to me. Because my heart is asking this question. God, how can you blame them then? He says, he says how then, in verse 19, he says, how will you... Um, how then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? So let's, let's back up quickly and see what he says. Verse 17. We're just going to back up a couple of verses. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's message. I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's message. I'm telling myself that. Um, you can go back and listen to it online, podcast. Um, I would encourage you to if you didn't get to hear it. Um, but here's what it says in verse 17. It says, For Scripture says to, about Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be might be proclaimed in all the earth. And again, that was prayed about during our prayer time even because that was one of the daily readings from last week was this idea of, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yeah, the Bible says so. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah, the Bible says so. Right, what we, what we don't want to do, and, and now here's the thing, which came first? The answer is, God is always previous. Right, so, so regardless of in our space and time and the temporal nature of our life, God is always first. There is no before for God. Right, there is no, he is always before. Now, what we, the other piece, like this passage in particular, points really clearly to is he says, God gives us the, he says, for this purpose, I have raised you up. So regardless of what you think about how it all worked out in Pharaoh's like, like temporal, linear, physical life, the reality is God called his shot about Pharaoh before Pharaoh was even born. And, the point, and, and, and Paul makes that point earlier with Jacob and Esau. And he makes the point of saying, before they were born, just so you people would know it had nothing to do with their, what they did or didn't do, I picked Jacob and not Esau. 
The point Paul is trying to press into is God has the right to do what God wants to do because he's God. Now, does that absolve Esau? Does that absolve Cain? Does that absolve Jacob? Does that absolve... Um, no. Everybody's a mess. Pharaoh's a mess. Jacob's a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. Guys, all of us deserve wrath. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But, but that's really the reality. Guys, before we go on to the, next, the rest of this first point even, I want to point... So when he says in verse 19... Um, so, well, then he goes on in verse 18. So he says, So, so God says... I will have mercy on whomever I will, and I will harden whomever I will. It's God's choice who he decides to show grace to and who he doesn't decide to show grace to. That's just the reality of Scripture, even though it makes no sense to us, as a God who wants all people to be saved. But, but, but here, so I want to I step back one more, one more, remember this image, and we're going to look at this every week for the next four, at least three or four weeks. Let's go back. So, so look at your, t- your first talking points question. Revisit the dog trainer analogy. And so what are some of the solutions for the, or what are some of the um, responsibilities of the trainer? What are some of the responsibilities of the dog? Remember, I want you to burn this image into your brain. Who's the, dr- who's the dog in the image? We are. We are blindfolded and we are a severely for- lower form of life. Right? And, we're, and, and not only are we severely lower form of life, we're blindfolded by the trainer. The trainer is God. And remember, and I'm going to say this every time. And, and guys, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, you, have, you and I have more in common with the dog than God has with the trainer. That's the reality. We are more like a four-legged furry beast than God is like us. And we're made in his image. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, God says in Isaiah 55. That's pretty high. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. But at the same time, let's, there, there are responsibilities for both. So let's look at our, so, so what are some responsibilities for the trainer in that scenario? What are some, I'm asking, kids, like what's the responsibilities of someone training a dog? What are some responsibilities for the trainer? Go ahead. Okay, training the dog, Good. So, he's, so he has a responsibility. He can't just leave the dog, right? Like that's, that's actually probably a good place to start. Like actually training. God gives us, he, he did actually give us something to train us with, his word and his Holy Spirit. Good, what else? Building trust. Good. Like is, is the, the dog has to trust the trainer, especially when the trainer's asking the dog to do some pretty risky things. Good, what else? Go ahead, Josh. What? Feed the dog the right training? Giving the dog the right training. So creating circumstances in their life that are going to lead them to, like, the, okay, for this mission, here's the training you're going to need. Absolutely. Guys, and if you're not, now these are all kids answering, which is awesome, but guys, if you're not getting the wisdom that's coming out of these kids' mouths and how it applies way more to just dogs and, and people and trainers, but us and God, this is what God does for us. Right? The circumstances of your life are not accidental. God is orchestrating the, place, the, the training that he needs you to have. Good. One more. What's that? Taking care of the dog. Just taking care of the dog's needs. Good. Let's move to the... I, we could keep listing more, but in the time, what are some responsibilities of the dog? Obey. That's a rough one, right? It's probably, I, I'll guarantee you right now, it's way easier for the dog 
to obey the, the trainer than it is for us to obey God. Why? Because of that other column. We do have a responsibility. God has given us agency. God has given us... Guys, the dog has instinct. Like the dog will always do dog things because the dog has been given instinct. We have been given choice. And that is massively different. Absolutely. So obeying for us is really hard. What else? Go ahead. Right here. Good. Listen to the voice of the trainer, especially when, like in this particular case, it was a combat situation. You want to teach that dog to listen. And, we're, and by the way, we're in combat. If you didn't know that, this is, there's a war going on. We're in it, right? It's spiritual. We need to be able to listen to the voice of our trainer, God. Good. What else? Who was talking over here? Somebody. Go ahead. Sorry? Walking the dogs? So exercise. Good. Actually getting them out. The, so, so, okay, good. What else? So trusting, he has to be, he has to be, he has to, he has to trust, he has to be loyal, the dog has to be loyal, he has to learn, like you have to actually learn some things, right? And that ultimately is, is back to our first point, is why we need to trust in God's plan, right? So, so, so let's keep, let's keep going in the passage, we've only gotten through one verse so far, oh boy. Um, <laughs> verse 20, it says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God, Will, the, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make, one out, to, make the, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So, he's, so Paul is pulling back. We read it last week as our calling passage. Paul is pulling forward, rather, this Isaiah 29. You've turned things around. Will the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? That's what Paul, Paul's pulling that Old Testament argument forward, and he's saying, guys, the minute you start going, that's not fair, God is saying, you have flipped it. You flipped the script. You've made yourself God. He's like, who says fair? Right? Now, here's what, but I want to be really, I want to be way more, because I hit, I hit that point hard last week. Here's the point I want to make really clear this time. That, that verse right there, verse 22, because I've, I've heard it preached this way. It was preached to me this way at different times. And this is not what this, this verse is not saying that God intentionally made people to punish them. This, I'm going to say that again. This verse is not saying that God intentionally made people to punish them. Because some people read this, that he endured with much patience vessels of wrath fit for his destruction. And they have this picture of God up in heaven going, like with his little Play-Doh going, okay, you're, you're in, you two are out. You're in, you two are out, because, because I need a group of people to punish. That is not what that verse is saying at all. Here's what it's saying. We are all vessels of wrath. Every one of the, the point, the argument Paul has made from Genesis chapter, or from Romans 1 is, we are all vessels of wrath. We were all made by God, and we rejected God. You have, I have. Countless times throughout the day, we do. We keep God at arm's length. We go, no, no, no to God. We're not the obedient dog. We're not the loyal listener. We don't, we, we, we aren't. We're just, we're, we're rebels. All of us are vessels of wrath. The enduring with great patience is the fact that God hasn't squashed us like a bug already. He isn't making us rebels. We chose the rebellion. 
That's on us. 100%. God made, did not make anybody to send them to hell. God wants all to come to repentance. God wants everyone to be saved. We are all vessels of wrath. But, the other, but we also have to acknowledge that God is not obligated to save any of those vessels. See, part of our struggle is that we go, okay, so we've all rebelled, but somehow it is, it is on God because he's loving and gracious to save us. No, he doesn't have to. He, he chooses to save. Now, the question we have to ask is, why doesn't he save everybody? And we can start coming up with some things like foreknowledge and, and God looked ahead in time and he, and, he, and he saw the ones that were going to pick him and so he came back in time. But guys, let's just say that were true. That's not what foreknowledge means in the Bible, by the way. Foreknowledge means to know personally beforehand. It doesn't mean to know events that are about to occur because there is no about to occur to God. It's all one moment. But let's just take that for a, let's just take that for a minute. As, as, as God, is, as before the foundation of the world, we were predestined in him, however you see that, let's say what was happening in that moment for Doug was, um, was that I was going to reject God. Like I did for the first half of my 54 years, I was going to do that for the rest of my life. Right? And, and God knew that. So that's why he didn't save me. Because I was going to reject him. What would, it doesn't absolve God of, of, of a lack of love. Why? Because what would have been the most loving thing for a loving God to do? Not make Doug. Does that make sense? So, like, so, so, so what we try to do is we try to say, well, God knew ahead of time what Pharaoh was going to do. Well, God knew ahead of time what Doug was going to do. Well, God, and that's why he made the decision. But by definition, who's in charge then? Pharaoh or Doug? Not God. Right, the and, and, it doesn't, and it doesn't fix the problem. That's the bottom line. That theology doesn't fix anything. Because the reality is, if, 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 the, if what we're trying to get our minds around is, how would a loving God let people go to hell? That, that solution doesn't fix the problem. The reality is, my rebellion is what would make me go to hell. And yes, God knows that. But that's not why he chose to initiate salvation in Doug's heart or not. He doesn't look and go, well, what are they deciding to do? Now let me see how I can interact. But, but again, we're, we're, we're getting too far down the road. Look at your second talking points question. And like I said, that, that first point is by far our longest. The last two will go faster. But, but I want you to just, I want to drive this point home because there is this mystery of, of sovereignty and responsibility that, that is beyond our comprehension. So I and we belabored it a lot last week, and I've already spent 20 minutes on it this week, but let's be honest. How much of what you believe about God is formulated by what you want him to be like versus how he reveals himself in his word? Now, I'm not asking for answers. I want you to stop and think about this. Whatever it is right now you're thinking about what I'm saying about what Paul is writing, how much of your view that you've brought here, whether it's, maybe you're sitting here today and you don't even believe in God. Or you believe in God, but you believe in sort of this generic God who just loves everybody and, and sort of spun this thing up and let everybody figure it out on their own. Whatever it is, wherever you're at, what has led you to believe that? Is it because that's the God you want? Or is it because that's the God he's revealed himself to be in his word? 
Because, because here are two areas that have sprung up because of the first, because for, for a lot of people, we, wanna, we want to define God. And so that's where universalism comes from. Guys, and I don't mean some whacked out churches that are, you know, I mean, I mean churches that are professing that they believe in the Bible, that, that, are, that are saying that they, that they follow Christ, and they're saying, well, God is loving, and he would, because he doesn't want anybody to go to hell, and yet we know there are people that, that, accord, like, that, that might go to hell, God has just chosen to save everybody. You cannot read your Bible and believe that. Right? God did not choose to save everyone. Universalism is not true. Now here, but here's the other part. The, the, another area that, that, that's a struggle is we go, okay, because God is love and he, and he doesn't want to see people go to hell, God has, it was not, let me say, let me say it this way, it was not possible for God to save everyone because he relinquished some of his sovereignty to give us the choice. It was not, I'm going to say it again, it is, saying, it, it is not possible, for it wasn't possible for God to save everyone because he set up a plan where he's giving us the choice to rebel against him. Now the, the problem with that, again, God's sovereignty, man, is, is, is it true that he has given us the choice to rebel against I, I, That was a whole introduction. We absolutely choose to rebel against God, and that's all on us. But it is not impossible for God to save anyone. And here's what's so interesting to me. As I, even as I pray with the, with, the, with the most staunch man's responsibility people that we have in our body, they will pray things like this. God, I know there is no heart so hard that you can't break it, so break that person's heart that they would come to know you. I pray that way, but so, but so does like the hyper man's responsibility person. Well, what are we saying when we say there is no heart so hard that God cannot break it? God is sovereign over every human heart. That's what we're saying. Or we've ought to stop praying that way and just go, man, you know what, God, I, I don't know if you can, I, this one might be too tough a nut to crack. You can't handle that. The problem is you can't read your Bible and believe that. That leads us to our, finally, to our second point. So first, so how do we make sense of God's plan of salvation? One, we have to trust in the plan, which means we have to trust in the one who planned it, really. The second thing is we find faith in the past. Guys, let me, let me back up just one step real quick and ask, why even teach all this? I mean, I, I know it's controversial. I know it divides churches. I, I, I also beg you not to let that happen, not having anything to do with, with the church, but just, guys, don't let that happen in your soul. Like, none of what we're talking, it is a mystery. Nobody is saying you have to believe one thing or another to be saved. So don't make this some dividing line for you. Embrace the mystery. That's the message. Embrace the fact that you go, they're both completely true, and we're going to hit hard man's responsibility the next couple of weeks. Because Paul does in Romans chapter 10. So, why teach it? Well, because it's in the Bible. Like, I'm not going to just skip Romans chapter 9. Right? I can't. I don't know what to do with verses 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Right? I don't know what to do and, and so many other verses unless when you get there you just teach them. 
Here's the other thing. Guys, and I have written in the front of my Bible, and I read it. This is what I read before I, before I teach. I just have this thing, why I teach the word. And, I, and one, of the, one of the quotes, I read this every Sunday before I get up here to remind myself, and here's one of them. As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, come to the pulpit with great expectations. Preach God big, not small. Amen. Powerful, not puny. That's why we teach the sovereignty of God. Because, we, because guys, if the sovereignty of God is not true, we cannot rely on anything. That's, that's Paul's argument. So let's keep going. So look at verse 23. So well, let, me, let me back up. So we're looking at our second point. So we have to have faith in the plan. Or we, have to, um, we have to find our faith in the past. Sorry. So look at what he said. So, so in verse 22 he said, What if God prepared with much patience, he put up with much patience, all of us that are vessels of wrath. Now here's the Remember the question about why would God put the tree in the garden? Why would God allow Adam and Eve to rebel? Why would God allow Satan to rebel? This right here is the why behind that answer. When somebody says to you, why is there evil in the world? If you believe in a loving God, why would he allow evil? This is the answer right here. He says, "Be in or what if he did all of this? In other words, what, what if he made humans knowing they were going to rebel and become vessels of wrath, all of us, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which are prepared beforehand. Guys, here's the reality. Remember the slides? If everything was black, we would know, there would be no way to explain white. Guys, if everything was rebellion... If the, you know, the common grace wasn't even a thing. And guys, you'd be, the, God is holding back, as bad as the world is, common grace is, is, is something that is making the world even sustainable apart from saving grace. Now, let's just say, every, let's say there was no grace at all. God just removed everything. He just let things, guys, how would you explain to somebody what the grace of God is? You couldn't. There's no there's no, let's take it the other way. Let's say everybody, like it's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. Everybody gets grace without ever having had the experience of seeing what no grace looks like or seeing what even grace is. It's just the whole world is just grace. How do you explain to somebody what grace is? You can't because it's all they know. The way we explain grace is we say it's the unmerited favor of God. Well, the only thing, what makes it unmerited? Our rebellion. Because without the rebellion, there is no redeemer. The reason there's bad in the world is because unless there was bad in the world, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Now, I remember I said our answer might not be one we like. There's a part of me, oh, oh who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Well, can I have a moment, God? Because I would do it different. Like, honestly, like I, like, I hate the suffering. I hate the pain. I hate the sorrow. I hate my own sin. Like, seriously, couldn't you come up with a better plan? So let me just step away from it and go, so God says, okay, Doug, what you got? I don't know, but couldn't you come up with something else? It's like the person, it's like when you go, hey, hon, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? Well, I don't know. Well, how about if we go here? Well, I don't really want to go there. Okay, well, if, well, then what's your plan? Well, I don't really have one. Okay, then just take the plan that's there. Go where I want to go. Like, like, this is what we do to God. God, couldn't you have come up with a better plan? Okay, tell me what you got. He's like, and, you're, and we're all like, yeah, I don't know. 
Because how does God, so here's the thing, God is, this, God is loving and just and, and omnipotent and omnipresent and, and all-powerful and he's, like he's, he's love and he's all these things. But guys, there's two massive aspects of God that we love more than just about anything and they are his mercy and his grace and there would have been no way for him to reveal those things to us had we not rebelled. That's why he allowed it. And we might not like it, because I'd rather have a world without rebellion, and that day will come. But the people in the new heaven and the new earth will remember what the rebellion looked like, and it'll make us appreciate the grace even more. That's, there's our answer. That's the reason, this to me, if you take nothing else out of Romans 9, understand, the problems we see in the world are not surprised, or they're not surprised by God, and ultimately are part of his plan, to reveal his grace to us, right? There was no plan A and then a plan B and a plan C. There's only ever been one plan. So put up the Old Testament survey. If, if for those of you that were in the Old Testament survey, you're probably going to have post-traumatic stress disorder um, when you see the, the flow chart that we had, right? Like this is, a, this is something we used in the class to talk about God's plan of salvation from the very beginning through the Old Testament. And guys, you can, here's what's so cool is I'm talking to some of you that took this class for the first time this semester and we're talking about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Like this walk through the Old Testament where we see God orchestrating his story from the very beginning beginning by intervening into the will of the life of people is making you it's making you go i see the sovereignty of god like i've never seen it before i still don't understand how it fits with the responsibility of man but i see it like i've never seen it before because you can't know that story you can't know the old testament story and go god god would never interject his will on somebody else you just can't guys so a couple a couple of quick questions can god invade a life Man, I sure hope so. I'm so glad he invaded mine. Like seriously, can a God, can a God just invade a life anytime, anywhere that he chooses to? The answer is, of course he can. Right? So, so look at your last talking points question. There are many wonderful things about the Old Testament. Jesus is found, first, that Jesus is found throughout its pages. And as you trace God's sovereign hand, moving God's story from Genesis to Malachi, you learn to take great comfort in our God, who is in control of all things. So how familiar are you with God's story? How has your, how's your familiarity with the Bible helped anchor your faith? So, guys, think, just think about this for a minute. Can God invade a life? The answer is absolutely he can. And the Old Testament is full of those stories. He invaded Moses' life. He invaded Abraham's life. He invaded Pharaoh's life. He invaded Nebuchadnezzar's life. Guys, Nebuchadnezzar was a man both in foulness and in power that dwarfed Pharaoh in every way. And God dropped him to his knees. God did that. Nebuchadnezzar did not choose that. When God wants to, God will say, I am God, and you're going to know it. And Nebuchadnezzar eventually called him that. Right? And we see that story over and over and over throughout history. Guys, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote this letter, did God invade his life? Massively. Did Paul choose to follow Jesus? At some level, eventually, sure. But that's not how it started. How did it start? Persecuting Christians. Bam. Wake up, son. 
You're mine, and I have called you to this. I have made you for my purpose. Not a lot of choice there. Right? And we have to embrace that because that's what Scripture tells us. Grace will invade a person's life, and, so, and, and God will tell his story. And that brings us to our last point. And I love how Paul, how Paul, before we get to what we call chapter 10, he already starts us, okay, so if this is true, if God's plan of salvation is we have to, have, we have to trust in the plan and the planner, we have to find our faith in the, in these, in the past, he goes on, if you look at, starting in verse, um, if, you, if you look at verse 30, and he says, what shall we say? That Gentiles who did not promise righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness by faith. Now, guys, when you hear that phrase "righteousness by faith," hopefully, I know it's, I know we've been in Romans for about a year now. We took that we took a couple of long breaks. But when you hear righteousness by faith, you should be thinking Romans one, Romans three, Romans four, Romans ten. When we get there next week, Lord willing. But guys, how was Abraham considered righteous? By faith, by believing faith and belief are the same word. By believing in the promise of God, that's what. So, what was Abraham's role? Belief. What was God's role? Choosing, going, Abraham, Abraham, I'm picking you. I'm invading your life. Abraham had to believe God for it to be credited to him as righteousness. And Paul's going to bring this point. So he says, he says so the people, the, people, the, the, the non-Jews, that didn't pursue righteousness by faith, which, oh, by the way, in verse 31, is found in the very law the Jews were trying to practice. He's saying, Jesus the plan, God's plan of salvation through Christ is what the story is about. The Jews didn't believe it, but the Gentiles did. He says, why? Now look at, look at why did the Jews believe? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, as if it were based, but, but as if it were based on works. In other words, they didn't believe the promise. They thought some of it was up to them. God said, just believe that I will save you, and I'll save you. And the Jews said, okay, thank you, Lord, for that, but we also have to do this and this and this. Right? And, and ultimately, all, what God is saying, what, what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul is, no, you have to believe in the promise. So he says, behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, a stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him. So isn't that, just, isn't that interesting? The stone is a him, because the stone is obviously Christ, the cornerstone. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Guys, as the music team comes up and we're, and we're going into our time of baptism um, for response today, um, guys, understand this, that, that if, if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, we can trust nothing about our life. Then, then we are hoping people make the right decisions, right? If we don't believe in the, but listen, 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 some of you, I just lost you because one, things are moving around the room, and two, because you're like, oh, so here we go, sovereignty. If we don't believe in the responsibility of man, then we have no part in any part of our lives, and God did not make us that way as his image bearers. He wants us in relationship, and robots don't relate, how does that work? Remember last week? Eh. Right? Is Haley here? Okay. Mackenzie, come here for a second. Just because I picked all boys last time. So I just picked a girl. You're a girl. I know. Yeah. So I know other girls too. But just, So come up here. So last week I called up three boys. I, I offered them a dollar. Right? So I'm offering you five dollars. 
Which, which half do you want? The front half or the back half? The front half. You want the front half. Okay, I don't have the front half copied today because that would be illegal. However, um, what do you have to have in order for, any of it, for this to be worth something you go spend it on? The front half and the back half. So take the front half and the back half. And, and guys, remember that. Guys, rem- remember. Yeah, she gets five bucks. The, the, the boys last week like, I got robbed. Um, but guys, remember that. Like this, I, I know it's kind of a cute little but Guys, it takes both halves of the bill to make it worth anything. And we know that. And it's the same thing with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The minute we diminish one over the other in any way, and I know it feels like I've been hitting the sovereignty of God hard, because Romans 9 does. And when we get to Romans 10 next week, we're going to hit the responsibility of man hard. Because Romans 10 does. It takes both. We have to embrace both. Guys, we're about to celebrate a baptism. And I cannot think of another way to demonstrate someone who has embraced both. That the person being baptized today is come to faith in Christ. For, because, because some people exercise their responsibility in sharing the gospel. And God, in his sovereignty, said to Brady, you are mine. And enlightened his heart to the truth. And he believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's what we celebrate. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for that truth. I thank you for the mystery that is beyond our comprehension because you're a God that is beyond our comprehension. Even as we pursue you, even as we want to know more about you, because it just, it just puts us in more awe of who you are. Lord, I pray that we would rest there. I do. I pray that we would just embrace the reality that, that we have a real, genuine role to play in our salvation and in your story. And, it's, and we're not robots. But I also pray that we would embrace the sovereignty of a God who is gracious and loving and merciful and holy and just so that when the storms come and the battles rage and, and, and the enemy tries to um, prowl around, we can, we can anchor our hope in, in not ourselves and what we have decided, but in a God who is immovable. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.